Welcome to The Error Term. This is Jim Savage. Amos Elberg. And Josh Vasterman. Um, so Amos, I had this problem this week and you actually helped me a little bit with it. But I think it would be a really, really interesting thing for us to talk about today, which is this. You and your problems? Yeah, me and my problems. Um, the problem was this. One of my clients, they are trying or they have, they work in a part of Africa where there is um, very patchy mobile phone reception. And they've got thousands of customers all around uh, this part of sub-Saharan Africa that, are, that can be difficult to contact. They want to get in contact with their customers, but they don't know um, whether those customers can be contacted and whether they should go and knock on their door or whether they should just give them a phone call. So they've one of the pieces of data that they were able to give me was call logs. So they'd made hundreds of thousands of calls, uh, outbound calls from their call center to their customers. Now, unfortunately, the staff who'd made the, who'd recorded the calls hadn't necessarily um, pressed all the right buttons. They hadn't necessarily recalled, uh, hadn't labeled when the person hadn't been able to be contacted. So there were maybe three or four categories that they clicked on when the person was uncontactable. But they did leave notes. And these notes are almost like kind of tweet size um, text entries. Um, with various different terms that might mean the person did not pick up the phone. And so what I really want to do with this is work out which of those entries, which of those text entries actually mean the person is uncontactable. Mm. Now, this seems like a, a sort of task that you do all the time. Can you maybe talk me through how I should, I should deal with this data? Yeah, I mean, th this is... Uh you know, there, there are different kinds of text classification problems. And a lot of what I deal with is what we call natural language, uh, natural language programming, natural language processing. And this text classification problem is the problem that people don't say what they mean. They use short language. They don't uh, use language that uh, you're going to have spelling errors. You're going to have typos. You're going to have grammaticals. You're going to have weird things that make the language hard to parse. And it's really a, uh, especially if you have short text, I'm going to guess those notes are very short, you're really playing a game of uh, finding some, you know, each term is going to be a feature. You can make a, uh, some kind of feature vector uh, where each term, each n-gram becomes a feature, um, and you can try and predict from that. And there are a couple of tools that work well for that. Um, but fundamentally, this is a, uh, in, until the text grows to enough size that you can work with it, uh, dirty text is a hard problem. Really? So, so when you say grow, do you mean longer than a tweet or do you mean more entries than a couple of hundred thousand? Uh, I mean longer than a tweet. Tweets are actually interesting. I had a project a, a few months ago, um, and it was, it was, it was the sort of project that you get at a startup, um, you know, sentiment classification in NLP is, it's a thing we deal with all the time. Is the, is this text positive or negative? What emotion is it expressing? Can you classify this as favorable to the stock or unfavorable to the stock? Sentiment classifiers. And the task was um, build the best sentiment classifier you can in three hours and then apply it to this body of unknown tweets. Hmm. And, you know. Were you told why? Pardon? Were you told why? I, I was told why, in fact. And the reason was because they pay me. <laughs> right. And they asked me reason. to. 
and therefore I was going to do it. So, um, yeah, so, so I, I go and I build my text classifier, and uh, I use what tools I have. And it's not a bad text, you know, it's not a bad sentiment classifier. It's not a great one either. And then I go to run it on the tweets, you know, these unknown tweets. And it turns out that these tweets are all discussions of Donald Trump in October of 2016. <laughs> okay. And if you think about that, if you think about what problems are entailed there, you know, putting aside the problem of sarcasm and the problem of irony, you know, what, what does a, uh, you know, when is go get him Donald sarcastic and when is it not? What emotion, you know, if you want to classify something, you have to have some real world ground truth label that you're trying to fit on it. What is the real world ground truth label that any two people would agree on to describe the emotion of somebody who is really likes Donald Trump and is making nasty comments about Hillary's email. Is that a positive emotion? Is that a negative emotion? Is that anger? Is it craziness? What, and, is, and, it, is it valuable to have that label, though? If, if, the true on the, if the underground truth is that this is a person who loves Donald Trump and hates Hillary Clinton, isn't that descriptive enough? But you might also, you might also have someone who's being sarcastic and saying, oh, oh, great, you know? I've, I've done pl- political sentiment analysis with, with Australian, Australian politicians, and Australians are an especially sarcastic bunch, and it's, it's impossible to classify good and bad tweets. When you actually manually go over them, people are, that's how people be mean. Yeah, that's the, I mean, nobody told me just classify them as likes Donald, doesn't like Donald. They said classify them as positive or negative. And I'm not sure how meaningful that is when you have 140 characters and you're talking about Donald Trump. But actually, James, what you bring up is actually something really interesting. We had a project to, uh, we have an ongoing project to do voice recognition. And the voice recognition, it's a, a deep neural net that recognizes voices. It's supposed to listen to uh, stock traders talking to each other, recordings of that, and figure out whether or not they're doing bad things. And, and as, a, as a, a voice recognition engine, it's a really good voice recognition engine. It recognizes voices really well, with the sole exception of Scottish. <laughs> and apparently, in the world of... I, I, I'm not making this up. Apparently, in the world of machine learning, voice recognition is not quite a solved problem, but it's a well-understood one. But nobody has managed to crack the nugget of Scottish voice, voice recognition. That's brilliant. There, there literally is no, like there are apparently papers just on the subject of Scottish <laughs> voice recognition. It's an unsolved problem in machine learning. Why is that? I mean, surely you can, I mean, the, a neural doesn't care what Scottish sounds like. It just needs labeled text and, and some inputs, doesn't it? H- have you ever tried listening to Scottish? I can't tell <laughs> what they're saying. So actually, uh, speaking of bitches... Um, did you guys happen to see the Vox article slash uh, video clip about Kellyanne Conway's deflections? So this was a thing that was that a lot of pundits talked about. Maybe it was two weeks ago, actually, or earlier last week, actually. I think, yeah. Um, the idea was that Kellyanne Conway, at least while she was still being given airtime, <laughs> seemed to be particularly good at uh, completely evading questions that were asked of her. Interviewers would ask her. Are we ever going to see Donald Trump's uh, tax returns? And she would somehow swerve around. And she'd have only a couple of maneuvers, seemingly, according to, the, to this article, that she'd employ. And um, they, they brought on a master debater, a champion, uh, a winner of some debating championships, to go and analyze the techniques that she was using. 
how was she deflecting these questions? And just she'd go through interviews and talk to the guy for an hour. And the interviewer would continue to ask her questions or try to. And she would just swerve and go to another topic and he wouldn't get anything. It was very frustrating. So what was she doing? There were a couple of techniques that they identified. One thing that she was particularly good at doing is making it seem as though she were she was answering the question by picking up on a couple of words. So, for example, they'd say, uh, don't you think it's problematic that uh, Donald Trump's travel ban has forced uh, such and such citizens to, to be held over in the airport or whatever, a question like that. Um, and rather than making any attempt to address the question of the travel ban, she would pick up on the word problem and she would say, you know what's a problem? The millions of people with poor health insurance in the U.S. or some garbage like that. Um, and when people would, when they asked her about the tax returns, she would make it about uh, honor. You know, you're asking, why do you want to see Donald Trump's tax returns? Is it because you think he's dishonorable? Well, you know, how, how could you even fathom talking about Donald Trump's honor when Hillary Clinton is on the other side and she's just this heinous, dishonorable, corrupt person? And she would go and, and the conversation w would leave Donald Trump there and it would start being about Hillary Clinton or it would leave the problematic Trump Muslim ban there and, and start being about this completely other random topic where she was now completely in control of the flow. Anyway. So, so, so they discussed this technique and a couple of others, and I thought, this seems like a, a, the kind of problem that uh, there must be a really cool visualization for. How could we build a visualization to show deflection tactics? When do they work and when don't they work? Because it's something that you and I can pick up verbally. We can sort of see what she's doing. She's picking up on the word problem, or she's picking up on the theme of honor, uh, and she's carrying it across. So if we can see it, surely a machine can see it. Um, but how and what could what could a visualization like that add to our understanding of rhetoric? You know, th what this kind of reminds me of, I was at a, uh, I went to a meetup last night and the speaker at the meetup was uh, Mikolov, who's this sort of great, uh, you know, genius of, of neural nets and uh, an NLP. And, you know, we're waiting for the, for the thing to start. And there's this sort of older fellow, beard, gray hair, and he looks like what you would expect a artificial intelligence genius from the Czech Republic to look like. That was not Mikolov. Mikolov, he's very European, mm -hmm. let's say. Okay. And uh, and he and he gives this this talk. Um, and and funny story. So at the end of the talk, it's time for questions. And this isn't really a fully, um, a, really a math group. It's really a uh, you know it's the consciousness club. This woman starts you know, her question, and she's got a very thick Russian accent. And she says, you know, the problem with these neural nets is you, you have to think about it in terms of children. You only train with rewards. But we know from children that the way to train is with punishment. The problem is you're not punishing these neural nets enough. You need to find a way to... And I turned to the person next to me and thought, that is the most Russian question <laughs> that's ever been asked in an artificial intelligence meetup ever. So anyway, so the, 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 the purpose of the meetup is they have a challenge where... Um, to solve, they want a, they're offering a, a, a reward money if you can train a neural net to do incremental learning, where, where it reads text, it reads natural language, and then it reads more natural language and sort of learns multiple things that layers them on top of each other as it goes. Rather than one shot, or is, this isn't like a one shot type of learning, thing. Oh, sorry, by one shot, it's not looking at everything and learning at once. 
This is kind of sequential. It, it's even less than one shot. It's not even zero shot. It's like imaginary number shot. So um, it's, it's learning like a human learns, where you read something and then you know it, and you read something else that relates to the first thing, and now you know three things. So at the end of it, I go up to, to, to Mikhailov and I say, I, I, I really want to know, you know, do you think that this is actually feasible with this data set? And he starts giving this you know, sort of long explanation. And I said, but, but you know, that's not what I was asking. It's a practical question. This is a machine learning challenge, and they're offering money. And trading money for artificial intelligence is what we do. And I just want to know, do you think that this is feasible? And he just starts laughing. Uh, and the, I mean, the response is he, he gives me this look, and the look is, you know, this isn't, you know, this is like never. You know, well, not never, but th this is not going to happen in the next six months. This is not going to happen in the time frame of the thing. It's just too hard a problem. And the problem with that reminds me of Shoshana's question because it's we can do a lot with NLP. We can do a lot with NLP and neural nets. We can do really amazing things with NLP and neural nets, in fact. But even the ones that are really at the frontier of what we can do, what we call the, you know, the Western memory networks, where they can learn to remember things, learn to recall things, they don't really get into that level of sophistication where they can learn the kind of things that you describe unless you have a really large data set that's specific to that problem that you can train them on. And even then, um, the problem that you're describing, the thing is you have lots of negation. You have lots of times when the same sequence of words may have the opposite meaning depending on who the speaker is and whether it's prefaced by something else. Yeah, I, I get that. But you, surely you can do something, right, with an additional human layer to guide the training. So, for example, if I know that she's... There, there is such a thing uh, in NLP as, as finding connections, topic connections, right? So, like, I use the word um, bear in one sentence and then one speaker says bear and then... A couple of sentences later, the next speaker says the word bear, and I, I can train my machine to know that that probably means, since bear is not a particularly common word, uh, that probably means that there are related topics. Well, that's two different things. There, there's topicalization and there's co-reference, um, and they're two different things. The, I meant co-referencing, sorry. Co-referencing is actually a really hard problem, um, and the best, uh, it's, it's a problem I'm, I'm, I've been working on, and the best published co-reference um, system takes, I think, something like, uh, you know, not sure that this is right, but I think it was eight seconds per document. What's, uh, what does document mean? How big is document? Like you, you, you feed it an email and it's going to spend eight seconds just figuring out the co-references inside of one email. What makes it hard? Large combinatorial space. So. Yeah, is that, is that the only thing? Pronouns. Language is really nested and, and it has a context. Um, and storing the context and keeping track of the context in a neural net uh, or in any kind of machine learning is a hard problem. The way that we do this is we, uh, we have a network that's, that's recurrent that goes through the sequence of terms, and um, each step, it, it has two inputs. It has the output from the previous step, and it has the next word. So you get a, uh, what's it called? An output whose length is equal to the input. Mm -hmm. And the way that they do co-reference in the, in the best model is these outputs, uh, output vectors, are then compared with each other with cosine similarity to see which ones are most similar to each other. But if you think about that, which words turn into phrases, which ones are actually references, which ones are verbs, which ones are pronouns, how do you relate all mm. that? It's a, it's a hard problem. You know, so, Amos, I was, I was, a few weeks ago I was teaching a, um, an econometrics, a Bayesian econometrics course, and one of the students of the course, I shouldn't really call him a student, he could have been teaching the course, 
Um, he works a lot on financial markets and Bayesian modeling in financial markets and especially how macroeconomics will affect um, financial markets. Now, one of the really interesting things in the kind of Bayesian macro modeling world is that you have data that come along and you've got some amount of time and then there's a new release of data. And what you want to do is have a whole bunch of uh, maybe latent variables or other things that you're backing out for a model like parameters. And you want to have um, estimates. When you're back training your model, you want estimates of what those parameters were at a given point in time. But you do not want future observations um, to influence the past observations. Now, there are a couple of different ways of doing this. One way would be to simply slice up your data into um, sequentially growing training sets and then uh, sequentially shortening test sets. But there's this other um, very interesting kind of method uh, called sequential bays. And sequential bays is a technique where you basically specify the state of the model, which is the state would be your latent parameters and that sort of thing, and some law of motion that they, they vary by. And the sequential Bayes modelers have worked out nifty ways of having only needing to show the model the next um, period of data. And then it's able to create the, well, you get posterior inference for the parameters in that next period. And then you can show the next period. But there's no, no possibility that those future values are going to pollute the past values of the parameters. Um, and so it's a really, really powerful little method. Now, are people doing similar sort of things in, in kind of machine learning with, with language? I mean, one of the things I would think about is that it's really, really computationally expensive to, um, to estimate models over large numbers of documents. Now, it might be nice to instead have some, some state or some, some current posterior that you've got and that you've trained on so many documents. And then when you've got some more documents that come along and you could show those documents to the previously fit model and update that posterior. Are people doing that sort of thing? You know, I'll tell you, we have, there are models that actually people, what people use Monte Carlo for in NLP actually is this problem of co-reference. Hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, it does. The thing is, the problem with it is this. You know, you were telling me that when you have more than 250,000 examples, it stops being computationally tractable and I can tell you that you know even in the big data world where we have clusters um, when you're running Monte Carlo and you have two million emails and it's suddenly it's 10 million emails yeah um, that that is not that does not scale Uh, Monte Carlo does not scale in linear time I think it scales in some like exponential time and it creates a real problem Um, and uh, you know in fact there are folks who are working on that um, and the question is, can we even keep Monte Carlo? Um, can we make Monte Carlo fast enough that it's viable um, for customers until we have something else? Mm. Uh, but it's really hard. Um, you know, th- these are the kinds of questions, honestly, James, that, uh, uh, you know, you, these are the kinds of things that you know much better than I do because you're going to know much better than I do how to solve a, a complex Bayesian problem in an efficient way. I mean, you have this, you know, you periodically in your blog and periodically even on Facebook, you'll post these analyses with, with really pretty charts too. And they will be of things like basketball um, or... Uh, Second on the prettiness of the charts. 
Yeah, it, well, look, look, the prettiness of the charts matters. Let's let's keep our eyes on the ball here. Absolutely. Um, so, but you'll you'll post these things, and it'll be like you'll it'll, it's like you spent two hours on it, but you took some incredibly complex, dirty data set from wherever you got it, and you came out with something, you know, a clear correlation, a total relationship, a, you know, totally clear visualization, and you managed to do this in a Bayesian way, which of course makes it better. <laughs> in, in a sophisticated, in, in like an hour and a half, two hours, I'm like, how do you do that? So uh, I, no, uh, there are a couple of these um, little things and I only do them when I'm especially motivated. But I think the one that you're really referring to this week, I've put up some stuff on, on baseball. And one of the things I've been really interested in because I, I'm Australian, as you could probably work out, and I moved over here about really? 14, 15 months ago. And um, I met... Yeah, and you yeah. haven't been kicked um, out yet. Congratulations. Yeah, I'm growing my beard, so so we'll we'll see what happens. So far, so good. Um, after after a few months here, we actually we, we made this kind of decision, this very conscious decision to become Americans, and how we thought we'd do that was to get cable TV. We don't have cable TV anymore. We kept it for a few months, but then we just found we didn't watch it. Um, <laughs> but the intention was that I'd I'd watch as much American sport as possible. And so I started um, watching a lot of baseball. And baseball is an incredible sport. And a few years ago, I was in Chicago. It's an incredible sport. It is so You mean incredibly so boring. A few years ago, I was in <laughs> Chicago and I went and saw a Cubs game. And so we kind of have all this Cubs paraphernalia. And so it was just a great year to, to like follow the Cubs and, and watch them perform. But one of the things I was, I was quite interested in is they, they never seemed to like – completely squashed the opposition. They won lots and lots of games, um, but they never really squashed the opposition. And instead, they had an incredible pitching staff. They had the best bullpen in the league. And what, what I wanted to work out was how much of their winningness, how much of the fact they won you know, the World Series comes from them having great hitters versus them having just a really good defense. And there's this... Offense versus defense. That was your that was your chart. Was the how much of it was the right. quality and, of the and offense and how much of it was ranking, the quality of the they defense? They were like the fifth best defensive team, like but way 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 behind Boston. So Boston, you know, have some mm. really expensive big hitters and that sort of stuff. Instead, Chicago had a pretty good hitting t- hitting team, um, fifth best in the league. But their their defensive team are like one and a half standard deviations better than the next best um, on on my score. Um, it's just a huge, mm. huge uh, difference between them and the rest of the league. Um, so that is when you've got this model that tries to work out how good their defense is at shutting down the plays of the, the opposition um, that, is, that is completely won. Now, that sort of model is, so to get to the Bayesian um, point, that sort of model is really, really fun to fit because um, it is built on top of, these all these latent variables. So rather than having a whole bunch of features and um, and kind of outcomes, as you might think about in the in the machine learning world, the features are here. They're latent variables. They're things like quality of the defense and quality of the offense. So you've got actually no features in your model in these models. They're completely latent models. Um, and that's what makes them really, really fun. Um, you're trying to back out these latent parameters. And the way, the way you do it is that, um, I'm not sure if you, have you ever done any um, structural equation modeling? 
Um, and Josh, I'm not talking about uh, structuralism in the way that you you do structuralism, but SEMs. Have you ever had a look at these? No, I don't think so. They're they're a really nifty thing. I think they came out in the 60s or 50s. Like they're really old. But the the notion is that you can create these, and psychologists love them. Psychologists adore these things because you can draw causal arrows. Um, those causal arrow, arrows you know, typically are, are meaningless in in most. Um, psychological papers but you can still have like um you might have a survey that you do and it asks the same question eight different ways you know when you're doing those questionnaires and asks you and you're like oh i've already asked yeah. answered this question um so what they're doing when when they're uh asking you the same question multiple times is they're trying to back out um a latent value of the construct that they're trying to measure and that if each time you answer is um, has uncorrelated measurement error, then you're really trying to um, you're trying to back out this uh, you're trying to back out this um, how, how do you call it like a, a latent latent value, and then you can point those latent variables at various outcomes, and so you can say like how much does picture quality or defense quality point at you know, winningness or ability to shut down the defense or willing ability to score more runs. Um, yes, yeah, so that's that's what I've been up to. There's, thank you very much for that uh, that little nice thing to say. You know, I have to. You know, what you just said, you actually brought up something interesting, which is, uh, you know, you may have read the book Moneyball, which is about how the coach of the A's a few years ago, uh, the coach or the manager, whoever it was, of the Oakland and Billy A's, Bean use statistics to take a team that had no money to invest in people. Yeah, Billy Bean, no money to invest in people, but using statistics was a much better at selecting cheap ball players who together would form a team that was very effective um, in scoring points. And and for a long time that was sort of like, you know, it was sort of this beautiful story of data science. And then and I bought into that and then I realized a couple of years later, because um, they had that steroid scandal, all of those Oakland A's players <laughs> <laughs> that was the latent variable. The latent variable well, the, was that so the, the whole, whole team was on steroids. Was, wasn't it? I mean, this is just like the <laughs> and almost all professional sports. Well, like. well, it was it was that era, but it was particularly that Oakland A's team, and it was particularly like the people who were the great discoveries by Billy Bean, like the people who he had found who were really cheap, but were you know really scoring well on one thing or another on, on some statistic, and they were able to to win because of that. Those people were like exactly the people at the center of the steroid scandal. That's great. So, so Shash, but you, your, your work, Shash, I un- what I understand about your work is that you do economics work in, involving game theory and decision trees. Is that right? Kind of, yeah. I mean, I, th- the sort of two-line summary of what I do is that um, when you guys do machine learning with training data, you have some sort of real-world expertise to to guide what your data means and use that to make your model make sense. Ah. Right? You you have some way to, to map inputs to outputs. Um, the the idea of what I do, yeah, you, you seem very eager to correct me, but let me let's just pretend that that's right. No, no, no. I, I'm eager to crack jokes. It's two totally different <laughs> okay. things. Okay. I'll, uh, I'll learn your resting joke face then. Um <laughs> The really easy explanation of what I do is that I use economic theory uh, to guide the training. So, so when we see an economic output, that's something like a set of 
the simplest examples may be a set of prices and quantities of different items that are bought at those prices. We could look at those as just arbitrary things that happened, but we sort of believe that there's some systematic uh, way that those prices and quantities came to be. There were people who demanded these, who, who wanted these items, but they wouldn't have been willing to pay infinite dollars. They would have been willing to pay some number of dollars, and the number of dollars that was chosen was chosen so that uh, something like an optimal number of people could buy them, given how much they, they cost to produce and things like that. So the way I would look at that is to say that the prices and quantities that I got to observe were set in equilibrium. Um, somehow a bunch of things happened and people were smart and experimented um, and figured things out such that um, the, the economic snapshot that I get to observe has different parties best responding to each other. Uh, firms best respond to consumer demand by setting prices that are somewhat optimal and consumers best respond to prices by choosing the items that they most want given how much all of the items that they're offered cost. Um, that's really useful to me because it gives me additional information. The fact that it's set in equilibrium means that um, I can say something about the dynamics of how, it would, how the world would look um, if one of those parameters or some of those parameters simultaneously maybe were changed. You know, what would happen if a new item that looks kind of like the items that existed before were introduced, for example? Or what if the firms, uh, the firms merged together and suddenly production became a lot cheaper? How would that affect things? It's difficult to answer that kind of question with, with straight-up machine learning because too many things are changing, right? Like, how do you think about a whole new firm that's a combination of two new firms? You, you just don't have data on it. You don't know what it looks like. Um, but I know sort of what it looks like under the guise of, uh, uh, under the understanding that the firm is this profit-maximizing price setter. Um, and so I, when, when I write up my model, I use the economic model of how prices are set to... Uh, find, deduce the latent variables that drive uh, optimal price setting behavior like marginal costs or things like that. Um, and then I can answer harder questions about counterfactuals. That's sort of the, an attempt at an explanation. What do you think, Jim? Well, this kind of reminds me, I had a discussion today with a couple of friends who are in a kind of machine learning type startup. And there are a lot of people working on kind of very operational um, data science questions. So, for instance, you know, how do we best price a piece of insurance or how do we best price a book or something um, by working out how sensitive mm -hmm. customers are to prices. They're sim simple examples. But really, I mean, what a lot of people who've, who do uh, work on this problem find is that they're working with managers and these managers have been incentivized to uh, make money. And so they, Amos, the, the point I was trying to make before was that there are many, many uh, people in the data world who are working on very operational level things. That's because a lot of the tools that have been made and a lot of the tools being popularized by you know, platforms and outfits like Kaggle um, have really been about prediction. 
And so anyone who's got a, a predictable prediction problem, I mean, it's more or less solved. I'm not saying that all prediction problems are solved, but I'd say the vast majority of simple prediction problems are, are solvable with current technologies. And I mean, if you look at things like um, some of the predictive APIs or some of the systems like H2O and stuff that you can, we can put together, you know, fairly good models in you know, a couple of minutes, very, very easy to use systems. I just don't see there being a huge amount of value added um, in easily done prediction. I mean, it's not, it's quite different from the stuff that you're doing, like, you know, classifying emails and, and, uh, and, you know, conversations, that sort of thing. But I say that a lot of the low-hanging fruit in prediction is, is you can't make any real impact by working in that. One of the things you can do, though, sorry, go on. I, I agree with you. I think the low-hanging fruit in all of these categories is gone. Um, I mean, one of the things that we have... Absolutely you know, gone. We do, uh, if you're doing text classification, which is a lot of what we do, Microsoft has just released this text classification platform. And, you know, the thing is, um, so for, for easy text classification problems, the low-hanging fruit's gone. But for hard text classification problems, it's a different story because they're hard. Right. Actually, but, I would like to know at some point what, the, what constitutes an easy classification problem. We can come back to that. Yeah. So the point, though, I think is that, you know, sort of stuff that Shosh is doing is geared towards completely different sort of problem solving, which is how do we solve strategic problems? And that is, and I mean, strategic problems is in what should the C-suite be thinking about um, in terms of do we release a new product? Do we go enter a new market? Um, do we enter a price war with some of our competition? These sorts of strategic questions are really where uh, masses of value are added um, by firms. It's not kind of marginal. It's not pricing something a little bit better or making sure a product is in stock. Um, it's it's like kind of $100 million or a billion dollar um, outcomes from these sorts of strategic differences. And it's actually an area where a lot of data science can add a lot of value. Um, but it's difficult because it requires yeah. that you have a deeper understanding of the of a model. And I think the way a lot of data scientists think about problems, as in let's see some data and now let's try to use that data to discover a model, um, really looks at things the wrong way around if you want to be getting into this strategic space. Well, could you could you elaborate on that? Mm. Yeah, so, so for instance, the sort of um, models that, you know, Shosh estimates... Uh, will yield parameter estimates that are nowhere near what you would get um, with a, I mean, you could throw a neural net or a, a Gaussian process, some, some kind of weird nonlinear sort of thing that's going to discover all the fancy correlations. And they will discover completely different um, relationships to the ones that, that these structural I.O. models get. And the reason for it is that structural I.O. models and these kind of strategic models have, because they've got the the equilibrium or the, the game underneath it or the, the assumptions about consumer behavior and that sort of thing and latent variables, what they're doing is essentially pairing back the possible sets of parameters. So, I mean, you could have, um, imagine you, you've got a problem and there's a, mm -hmm. a density or a potential density over a set of parameters for your model. 
Now, if you're a Bayesian, you go and put priors on these on these parameters, and, and then the, the data come along, you observe the data, and then that really concentrates the area that the parameters could possibly live in. But in the sort of models that, that Shosh is estimating, you're adding this, this more, more information from economic theory, and that may completely remove parts of the parameter space. For instance, when a price goes up, the quantity demanded is probably going to fall. Um, so we can probably remove the whole part of the potential, um, potential uh, price elasticity parameter space. All of the weight is going to exist somewhere else in the space. Um, and so by, by com and when you've got latent variables and whatnot, you can, it's really changing the structure of it. Um, now, these models, because they're, they've incorporated economic theory, they can really um, you know, model changes to, to sort of decision variables like price or like quantity or like creating a new product that has certain characteristics. Um, you can do, you can answer all those sorts of questions. Is that a reasonable characterization, Josh? Yeah, I mean, what's what's scary about it is that it's, in in a lot of senses, um, our counterfactuals are always going to make a lot of assumptions. We're moving a lot of, the the value of these structural models is that you can move farther away from your Ceteris previous assumption than you can in any sort of statistical way that's that otherwise. Whenever you do statistics, you sort of make assumptions along the lines of my future data will look like my previous data, except for this small change, right? So when I do uh, a linear regression and I interpret the coefficient beta on variable x uh, as the marginal change in y from a, mar from a unit change in x, or from a marginal change in x, I'm, I'm making a very strong assumption that my, everything else in my model, for all intensive purposes, will be exactly the same. Uh, if x changes and nothing else changes, then that alone will explain my, my changes in y. And if, if x changes and z changes, I'm already uh, losing some, some interpretability there. My linear regression doesn't actually really tell me in a, in a way that I, that I strongly believe what happens if all my variables start changing in some correlated way. Um, what's really nice about the structural models is that they give us a sense, to, a way to answer the question of what if x changes and y changes and actually the function by which x is created changes a bit, um, what will happen to y? And we know exactly what the model predicts will happen to y. That sounds really powerful, right? In some sense, we can model any sort of counterfactual of the world that's infinitely distant from uh, where we started off. And, and that's going to be crazy. Um, even if profound. I have tons and tons of data, even if I have tons and tons of data, um, unless I trust, uh, unless I think that, uh, my economic theory describes the world perfectly, I'm not going to believe that I can really predict what will happen in the world where suddenly, uh, Google is the only company that does anything, which I can theoretically do. Uh, so, so we're limited in some, in some sense by what we think is reasonable. But what's really cool about this approach is that it does seem to work. There's a growing number of cases where structural methods are used in industry, um, and they generate huge profits because it turns out that there's a lot of latent variables to be discovered by looking at uh, substitution patterns, by looking at people's choices. People don't 
seem to make their choices arbitrarily. Economics seems to have some relevance to describing how people operate and, and taking advantage of that um, seems to be very profitable. So, so it, it, it seems like there's value there for sure. Um, and I think the increasing demand for me as an economist <laughs> um, on the labor market is suggestive of uh, of where that's going. I guess we'll see we'll see how far how long this becomes, uh, how long it takes for this to become low hanging fruit as well. Inevitably, it will. So there's a, there's a great economist um, Eric Leeper, and he he's got this line. I'm not going to quote it exactly, but something along the lines of. We don't want theory for what happens in the mode of the distribution. We want theory for what happens in the tails because we don't we haven't observed. And he's a macroeconomist, and of course, we never observe many shocks. We don't observe many crises, which is why it's so interesting to theorize about how they work. Um, because we don't we don't, we've only got like six data points in the last fifteen years of of like a big recession that doesn't really tell us how they work. Um, so, but theory. And you know, argument can actually provide us a lot of information about how those things work. Is it true that that do all recessions work the same way? I mean, I kind of wonder if each recession isn't unique. Booms may all be the same, but crashes, you know, each crash is its own. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's the classic Chris Sims paper on this. Um, he wrote it in the early '80s, where he was looking at a history of of economic shocks and basically working out whether they tended to be demand shocks or supply shocks and he essentially called supply shocks ones that that had a a price shock where maybe you had an oil shock or whatnot. Um, and he basically said that the earlier shocks tended to be look like demand shocks, that prices fell before the shock, which would indicate that people are buying less stuff and so uh, prices would fall. And then in the 70s, you had these, these shocks that worked the opposite way where oil shocks came along, um, these supply shocks and, and unions up their wages to be able to keep up with oil. And so we had jumps in prices that preceded the, the recessions. Um, now, of course, then, then you come kind of come along to uh, 1990s shock, which is like all driven by German reunification. And then you've got like the, the naughty shock, which was maybe some tech uh, tech thing, overpricing assets. And then you've got the, you know, the, other, the second naughty shock, which was... Um, are you allowed to call it naughty shock here? Is it an Australian thing? I don't know if naughty has caught on mm. in the United States as much as it has in Australia. Yeah, I think. Uh... I actually had a, had, a, had a good friend in college who really wanted, uh, around when we graduated, which was just before 2000, he really wanted the, the 2000s to be called the naughties. And he was very disappointed that it didn't catch on. But I guess he should just move to Australia. <laughs> You've been listening to The Error Term. Thank you for listening, and be sure to tune in next time, which will be in a random number of days, drawn from an unknown sample. Yeah.